you have your Bibles, you can open them to uh, Genesis chapter 9. If you don't, <clears throat> the uh, passage is printed in your bulletin for your convenience. And so we're going to continue this uh, last look at Noah and the flood and what was going on there. And uh, the next week we'll, we'll look at the Tower of Babel, what actually was happening, what the message is there to... Uh, uh, to the people of Israel at that time and also to us in our day. And so uh, if you're in Genesis 9, we're going to start reading with verse 18 and following. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father." Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so now you finally know why Moses told the Hebrews not to eat pork. Moving on. Ham, don't you get it? Oh. Is that the worst joke you've ever heard? Say yes, it is. I know. I worked so hard on that. I was up late last night thinking up that joke. <laughs> Ham. Oh my gosh. This is one of those texts. You know, you come to this text and you go, I thought Chuck's been explaining so well and I'm getting it and I'm finally starting to get Genesis, you know. It's all in there. What now what? Naked Noah. Okay, here we go. Let's see what this is all about. In the flood, I told you, you know, that there's a, a lot that we don't know. Science cannot prove the Bible, and the Bible doesn't even talk about science. It could care less about science. It's telling us what happened and why. And the details are important, but you're not to get too carried away with them because sometimes they mean something else, and we have gotta, we've got to be sensitive to that. And so uh, here we come to another text, and my goodness, right off the bat, we're seeing something that's, that kind of hits us and it sounds so strange. God cleansed the world through uh, the flood. The reason he did that is because every thought, intent of the heart of man, if you remember back in uh, the earlier chapters of the flood narrative, were con evil continually. In other words, he just always, everybody was just completely bad, thinking of bad things all the time. But Noah, God looked down on the earth and he sees Noah. Noah finds grace in God's sight. 
And so God preserves him and his family, but the rest of the world, he cleanses or he washes with the judgment of the flood. And so from chapter 9 here, what we just read, all the way through chapter 10 is sort of the outworking of what came after the flood. It's the, the, the story of humanity now under God's grace before when their thoughts were evil and intent, God has stepped back and kind of let things go and this is what we got, a world that was con- evil continually. But when the flood was over, God made peace with man and said, I'll never flood the earth again and now I'm setting the stage for humanity to grow and to flourish and into that I will bring my kingdom, my kingdom family. And we'll see that later in the life of Abraham. So he cleanses the world And then there's this little thing there about Noah and his sons and this incident of nakedness. And and Moses is out on the plains. Now this is years later, centuries later. Moses is telling people this story. He's telling them, here's what happened in the tent. And they would have grasped this in ways that we cannot in our 21st century world. The whole idea of nakedness, the whole idea of shame, the, 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 the idea of dishonoring a parent, the idea of, of God's bringing judgment on a whole population of people because of the sins of his father. You notice Canaan is the one that's in the crosshairs, not Ham. It's his son and their offspring. You learn about them in chapter 10. So Moses is explaining to them, and here's, here's what you've got to keep... Keep this in your mind as you're reading through it because Moses is, this is years later, Moses is telling them about the past and he's saying, this is why we have got to go into Canaan and we have to conquer Canaan and take it back from the serpent. This is why we have to do it. It's because of this incident right here with Ham and Canaan and the nakedness. And you go, my gosh, how, how are we going to figure that out? I don't know, but I'm hoping that my notes will tell me as we get there. Okay, so stay tuned. Let's see. We're going to look at the tenacity. One of the things you see is the tenacity of sin. Sin just clings to human beings now after the fall. You can't wash it away with water. You can't wash it away with soap. You can't scrub it away. And we know that from our experience and the experience of the whole world, that sin has to be dealt with. We all experience shame to one degree or another. And sometimes it's crushing. And we try everything we can. We join churches. We get into religion. Uh, we meditate. We do yoga. We, whatever. We'll do anything to try to deal with our shame. Or we'll just say, I'm not going to be ashamed of anything. Just try it. It won't be hard. Try it. Say, I'm not ashamed of anything. And let any one of us walk up to you and and look at you for a minute. And I can say probably one or two words and make you ashamed. And you could do it to me. I don't know. It'd be hard, but you could. You just find what it is that is in that person and expose it. And yikes. Sin is tenacious. And the Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. It says it's tenacious. It says it's evil. It's hard. And Noah plants a vineyard. He comes out. Now, don't think they stepped off the ark and he planted the vineyard and the next day the vines grew. This, is, this happened years later. Who knows how many years later? Probably a lot more people. The baby Canaan was a, a kid or born already. And Ham and their, their children. So this could have been many decades later. We don't know. 
But Noah plants a vineyard, he plants a grapevine, and he drinks, he makes wine, and he drinks, and this is not uh, any kind of a moral uh, question mark against alcohol. It is not that. I've heard it used that way, but it's not about alcohol. In fact, it's only incidental to the story that Noah got drunk and uncovered himself. Some scholars said, well, the Hebrew word doesn't mean drunk, it means satiated, like he was really happy and he just took a snooze in his tent and he was laying there and, you know, part of his body was exposed, whatever. But that's really not the point of the story. The point of the story is that he was drunk and that his drunkenness created an, an occasion for a tremendous sin, not by Noah, but by his son, Ham. Drunkenness is incidental, there's no moral judgment made, although drunkenness is condemned later and there's multiple scriptures that you can tie to why drunkenness uh, is a sin and what it potentially can expose. All right. In verse 22, look at what he says. Ham, the father of Canaan. Now notice it doesn't say Ham and then leave it like that. It says Ham, the father of Canaan. Every time he's pointing them to Canaan. He's saying, this is, you see this population of people over here? Well, this is why they're this way. This is why they're so perverse. And I'll read you something in a moment about the land of Canaan. Ham saw, the word see is, he just saw him, but it also carries the meaning that he saw and he looked a little bit too long. That he didn't just see, like, walked in on somebody that was taking a shower. Oh, I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, you you turn your face away. No, he stood there and he looked and something was going on, but we don't want to say too much. Remember, I've told you over and over the big mistake we say, is, well, we start speculating. What possibly could have happened that we don't know? Let's find out because, I mean, naked's not a big deal, right? But when you say that, naked's not a big deal, it was just a mistake he walked in and just saw, then you don't understand sin. You haven't let the reality of if we took you and picked you up out of your chair and all the elders got around you and held you and we stripped you naked, you would be ashamed, right? If we, we didn't have to take all your clothes. We could just pull a little part down and we would be ashamed. Nakedness is tied to sin. And sin brings shame and guilt. And that's what the story is telling us. Tenacity of sin, it's there. And Ham indulges himself in it and it affects his entire offspring. Ham saw and then he told his two brothers outside. So what's the big deal? Sam, Ham saw, but it's more than that. It's more than just the fact that he saw him. Was there sexual contact? If you, if you read in some, some, and I did, I read commentaries so they're coming out my ears, and some commentators want to say, well, he molested his father. He actually touched him in some way that was inappropriate. And there's some other, other things that are said, and because there's little kids here, I don't want to say it, but if you have questions, I'll be happy to describe all of the crazy ideas that, that are out there. Now, while some, maybe that happened, I don't know. But that's not what the text says. Let's stay with the text and just stay with what it says and see if it will take us to the same place. And I'm going to say it will. It'll take us to the same place that all the gritty and evil details will take us if you really understand what he's talking about with respect to nakedness and sin. 
then it will be okay. You won't have to speculate and say, well, was there homosexual lust in his heart? Uh, was there uh, some touching? Was there something else? Was there voyeurism? I think there was probably some sense. You know what voyeurism is? That's when, you know, you enjoy looking, but not, you don't need to touch or do anything. Just look. And voyeurism is, has all kinds of uh, manifestations. Was it that? Well, maybe. But maybe to all of that. What we do know, more to the point, is that nakedness is tied to shame. Shame is tied to nakedness. They're tied to sin in the garden. And there's something in every one of our lives, I don't care who you are, there's something there, if we can find out, if we can get and push that button or pull that trigger, would devastate you. That if it was known, if it was exposed. Now I have those things in my life, and they're absolutely none of your business. But if they were known, you would probably run out of the room screaming. You wouldn't just say, oh, poor Chuck. You would run for your life. And if I found out about you, I'd run for my life. Because we all have those things. There's something down in every human heart that is tenacious. It's holding there. It's gripping you. And you don't know. It could be anything. And it leaves us naked. And what Ham did is he walked in and he saw his father naked and he looked. And then he left the tent and he went outside and he told his brothers who were outside. And very interesting, the Hebrew, it, this is a word, a, a complex of words that means he made it public. He did something outside the tent with his brothers so that they knew. But it wasn't just the two of them that heard secretly it became known. Dad's in the, in the tent, and dad's drunk, and here's what he looks like. Whatever that was. He makes it public. And in doing so, think about this with me now. We're only a few chapters away from the Ten Commandments. And what's the Fifth Commandment? Take a guess. Honor your father and mother. Fifth commandment. He dishonors his father. There's no doubt. You see, we don't have to read anything in to this. He dishonors his father in the telling. That's what Moses is trying to get across. Just that was enough. Never mind all the other speculation which may or may not have occurred. I don't think it needs to. I think this was enough in their world. It was enough to dishonor the father, to assault his dignity, to expose him to some shame, because in that culture, shame in the Middle East, any of you that know the ladies wear a hijab, why did they wear a hijab? Do you know? Does anyone know? Do you know Mike? Mike probably knows. He's been over there. They, they, wear, they cover because they're covering themselves so that they're only seen by their husband. And by their, the patriarchal society that you, you cover to prevent shame. Shame to them, shame to the other. They're very self-consciously ashamed of any nakedness. In fact, in some of the countries, Muslim countries, if you show your ankle, that's enough to get you stoned. That was the way it was under the Taliban. And we come over here and my gosh, we have the Kardashians. There's nothing left for you to imagine. It's all there. 
Or now that, you know, guys are coming out naked. Is there anything wrong with a naked body? Um, there is with mine, but I mean yours. What? <laughs> oh, come on. I, I hope you're getting this. I know it's hard to separate one from the other, but you know, in some cultures, nakedness is defined a whole different way than in the Western culture, in the, in the Middle East, and in Mexico, or in South America, in the jungles of the Amazon. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, it is tied to shame, and guilt, and exposure. Are you with me? This is what Moses is talking about. He's not wanting us to speculate about all the other stuff. He tells his brother, he dishonors his father, he disgraces. Think about this. We don't think about this, or at least we don't think it's that big a deal. He disgraces the Imago Dei. The image of God in his father, Noah. That's why we're supposed to honor our parents, by the way. It's because in doing that, we are showing respect to Almighty God who is who? Our Father in heaven. Right? Do you get the picture? If I can't honor my own father, who's is, there he is, he's back there, and, uh, and I've done a lot to honor him. In fact, I'm better than my brother who's over here. I've also done a lot to dishonor him. My dad had to come get me from jail one time. And uh, when he came in, uh, he left me there uh, till the next day. And when he came in, uh, we were sitting at the desk with a police officer writing my papers to get me out of jail. And uh, the police officer said, well, first name, he's talking to my dad because I was not well. And uh, Charles, what's his last name? And my dad said, I don't know if he's going to have a last name after today. Okay, so I dis- by, by my foolishness, I dishonored my dad. Now, he didn't throw me away. Thank God I became the upstanding citizen you see today. But, uh, the, the, uh, but you get the idea. See, he, something happened that dishonored his father. He made it public. It went out into the community. Whatever, if it was just the brothers, that was enough. It was too much. And the sin of Ham in some way corrupts his progeny, the kids that came from him. Listen to what Matthew Henry said. I, I, I wasn't going to quote Matthew Henry again, but I, I really want to because this was so good. To publish the faults of any, any person, to publish the faults of anybody, especially parents, whom it is our duty to honor, Noah was a good man. The Bible said he was a good man. Good father, righteous before God. This was not a most base, disingenuous requital to him for his tenderness. This was the worst thing. Noah was the exemplary father. He was a good father. He had a little too much to drink. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that Ham dishonored his father. Ham is called the father of Canaan, which intimates, listen, that he who was himself a father should have been more respectful to him that was his father. Do you see, these things start way down inside. Now I know all of you, are, if you're a human being, you know that the corruption starts inside and it works its way out. No, nothing, you know, things can, hap- things can happen bad to you and it makes you better. 
and you become a more together person and you, you suffer and you, you grow in strength and you grow in humility and you grow in, in tenderness or empathy to others that have suffered like you. You know, that's why AA works, by the way, is because you're in a group uh, of people who are broken. If only we could recreate that at Christ the King. That kind of transparency, that kind of brokenness to where you came in and you were all in, say, I, my name is Chuck and I am a big fat sinner. I'm, I'm less fat than I was, but I'm a bigger... I'm a, you get the picture. And we actually admitted to each other and didn't try to cover it up. Imagine the authenticity. But we cover, we cover, we cover our sins. And we do it out of self-preservation. I mean, if I actually told you, I told you I was in jail, that's all you know. What if I told you the whole thing with all the gory details? Well, my wife would run out the door screaming. To publish anybody's fault, it, it, it grades them, it strikes at the Imago Dei, it takes them down, and especially a parent. No matter how, I'm not saying that all parents are good, they're not. Except for me. I was a great parent. <laughs> oh, I hope you get the idea. I'm trying to, you know, keep it from being too heavy for you. So sin emerges in Ham. The sin emerges in Ham. It comes from inside. Whatever was in that man, he was that before they ever got in the ark. And he was that when they came out of the ark. And when they scattered all over the earth and he went off with his kids and had more kids in chapter 10, you read who they are. And Moses is saying, look, you see all these people? These are legendary people. I'm going to tell you in just a second. These are legends. Legends. In the annals of history, Canaanites is a general term referring to, listen, Phoenicians, Philistines, Ammonites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Hivites. Those were the nations that made up Canaan. And in archaeology, they have uncovered things that shows them to be the most horrific culture that has ever existed. You think the Vikings were bad? The Vikings were like Disneyland uh, workers compared to these people. These people were pure, unadulterated evil. And the more stuff that the archaeologists uncover about the Canaanites, it, it, it becomes more and more shocking. How could they do Ah, How could they do that? Ah, how could they do that? Their depravity is mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned in Philo of Biblos. The Phoenician scholar, this is 100 B.C., this is a long time before Jesus. In literature of the ancient Ugarit, this is the Ugaritic language that was discovered in 1929. Archaeology uncovered these tablets at Rosh Sharma in 1929. They translated the Ugaritic, which is a predate, predates Hebrew, and they translated and they go, oh my God, there's some great things there and some horrific things. It was because of their depravity that Scripture says it vomited them out. They were morally, sexually perverted in ways that you cannot even imagine. In fact, we can't talk about the things they did as part of worship. Can't even talk about it. I can't even mention it to you. I can't even suggest. And, and some of you, your minds would, can't go there. And I, I don't want your minds to go there. Probably part of the way there now, aren't they? To terrible things, things that are not done. You think things are bad now? Nothing like this. Morally depraved, sexually depraved, bloodthirsty, 
to the point where chi- the life of their children meant nothing. They would sacrifice a child to Molech or to uh, Baal or whoever they had to. In, a, in fact, they wanted to have lots of kids so they could make lots of child sacrifices. And God is telling Israel through this story, and they're on the plains of Moab, they're, they're marshalling their troops, getting ready to go in and invade, and they know who these people are. You see, they were legendary in the Middle East. Legendary in the ancient world for being the worst, the warlike, the brutal of all cultures. They were giants. You remember when the spies went in, they said, there's giants in the land. That's what he's talking about. These are warrior people. Scary, like Conan the Barbarian. When Arnold Schwarzenegger really knew how to, how to act. I give up. Okay. No, I don't. I, I, love, I love watching those movies, and I think that they're amazing because th- as bad as you see these horrific movies, you know, Conan the Barbarian, they're slashing and chopping everybody. That's probably something like that. Probably was pretty close. We see uh, the ISIS de- behead somebody today, and we think, oh, they're animals. Imagine if that was just part of culture, and it was more brutal than that. That's what you're dealing with. And Moses has spent 40 years explaining to them why they're going back into the land, why they're going to face these giants. Why are they going to do that of all things? Can't you take us over to Milwaukee where there's no trouble? You have to take us to Canaan. Why Canaan? Because that's the garden of God. The serpent has got control. We've got to go get the serpent out. You see? Now, if God told us that, we would, we would fall apart. But do you know he has told us that? And he's asked us to do that. To give your life for others. And cleanse the land. Not of bad people, but cleanse the land in your own heart. Because that's where it all starts, right? Started there with him. Cursed be him. Look at 24. Well, they walked backward and they covered his nakedness. And, and uh, one commentator said this, maltreatment of a father or mother placed on par with murder. You see, in the law of Moses, if you disgraced your parents or whatever, you know, you, were, you could be stoned. We don't know if they ever did it, but we, it was a capital crime to dishonor your parents. Because the majesty, here's what these commentators say, the majesty of God was violated in the person of the parents, when you dishonor them. Maybe they deserve, maybe they're not good parents, but nevertheless, when you dishonor them, you are bringing dishonor to God. I hope you can make the connection. Look at 25. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. Then he repeats it in each one. Now this is a poem, this is a song that uh, ostensibly uh, Noah is singing or chanting it's an oracle, it's a prophetic oracle, and it's put in a rhythmic form, a Hebrew form. And he's saying that, Sir, that Canaan is going to be the servant of servants to his brothers. He's going to be the lowest of the low. And this is not, let me say this with absolutely no equivocation, this is not, not, not an allusion to African slavery. Did you hear what I said? It is not an allusion to any kind of ethnic slavery. It's not telling you this so that you can go and get, get on your, your Holy Spirit glasses and go out there and try to figure out what descendants 
of Canaan are the slaves in this world. In fact, what you're going to find out as you go through the rest of Genesis is you are Canaan. That you're them. It has to do with the anticipated conquest. You see, it's not an illusion. He's saying that these people, because their sin has so enslaved them, you with me? Tracking with me? Sin has already enslaved them worse than anything you could do. They're going to be a servant to servants. The sin is going to take them down to places they can't even imagine. Talk to an addict sometime. If you talk to an addict, they honestly can't live without it. Can't. And we're so harsh with them. We say, ah, yeah, you just give it up. Just willpower. There's no power on earth that can break that. Only when we are fully submitted to God, and even then it can become hard. And why you need the church, why you need people around you, like, uh, like when we go to AA, we go there because there's people like us that are broken, they can help us float our boat, because sometimes we can't. And church should be that, this should be that. Where we are honest with one, I'm struggling with this addiction. Will you come alongside? Oh yeah, I'll come alongside you for five minutes. But what about years after years after years and you just stay with it and stay with it and pour your life into another? Moses was telling them that's what the kingdom of God looks like and that's what we're going in there to create. A community that reflects God and His all of His graciousness and goodness. And so he says these three oracles, which is really beautiful. I don't have time to go into all the details, but let me give it to you very fast. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. He uses the Tetragrammaton, the yod heh vav the the Lord, L-O-R-D in your Bibles, it's capitalized. That means he's using the ancient redemptive covenant name of God. yod heh vav Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever you, we don't know how it was pronounced. But whatever it was, it was that word. And he uses it many times in Genesis at strategic points to point out that God is in covenant relationship with Shem. Shem in Hebrew means the name. Baruch Hashem, Adonai Eloheinu. You know, you've heard that, right? Blessed be Baruch. Blessed be Hashem, the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Shem was the name. That's what his father chose to name him. The name. Like, who's on first? Okay, some of you got that. May God enlarge, look at 27, may God enlarge Japheth, and let Japheth dwell in the tents of Ham. Shem anticipates God creating the nation of Israel, and you're going to see it in another page. You flip the page, and bang, right there, it shows you that Shem's progeny bring Abraham, the great father of the faithful. And right here, Japheth, he says, Japheth is going to dwell in the tents of Ham. And if you look on a map, a Bible map, it'll show you that Japheth, the the tribes that, uh, chapter 10 shows you the tribes that come out of Japheth, and they're scattered all over Europe, Western and Northern Europe, Gog and Magog, even into Eastern Europe. And they are the Gentiles. They're us. And that we are going to someday be brought into this tent of Shem. I get chills thinking about what God is saying right here in chapter 9 of Genesis. We haven't even got to John 3.16 yet. In fact, you don't even need John 3.16. Did that make you uncomfortable for me to say that? I hope not. Paul didn't have John 3.16. Wow. Here you hear it right there. 
Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest in my tent. Same word for body, by the way, tabernacle. Same word for Jesus coming and dwelling among us, the tabernacle. You see, I've got to race ahead because we're running out of time. Japheth covered the nakedness, along with Shem, covered the nakedness of their fathers. How do you do that? How can you possibly cover the nakedness of someone else? Shem and Japheth did it by getting a coat or a cloak and they put it over their shoulders and they walked backwards so they wouldn't have to see their father and they covered him, okay? That's what they did. In another culture, another thing, it might have been something else. We don't know. But what they did was they took a robe and they walked in backwards and they laid it on their father. Why? What is Moses telling his people and what am I telling you you know nothing's going to wash that sin away nothing's going to get rid of that shame somewhere you're going to have to face that shame right here and you're going to have to look at it in the face and say you know I didn't go to jail but I've done this and I know nobody else knows this nobody knows this but me I'm envious I'm jealous I'm a people pleaser I'm power hungry I'm lustful you name your thing I'm so in love with church if I didn't have church I would die now you're taking something that's good and making it into the shame. You see, anything can be turned into that. Anything can be turned into an idol that brings you shame. And only you know what that is, and water won't wash it away. But on the cross, Jesus was put up on a cross, and in what condition was He? He was utterly naked. There was no little loincloth towel. There were no fruit of the looms on Jesus in front of his own mother. In a culture where that was the worst thing. Crucifixion, man, kill me first before you make me naked. No. I'm going to make you naked first. Then we'll kill you. Why in that order? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they're the same thing. Shame and sin and death will put you on a cross. Naked and exposed. And here comes Jesus. Naked. Goes up on that cross. And there He stays for you and for me. And guess, guess who? The first person that gets saved when Joshua led his army into Canaan, they crossed the Jordan River, and the first city that was there was an impregnable city called Jericho. And Joshua marches his army around Jericho for seven days and blow their horns, and the walls come tumbling down, and guess who the first one to come out and be saved and made part of the covenant community was? Some of you know, you've been to Sunday school. Rahab the Canaanite harlot. No, she wasn't the Canaanite mayor. She was the Canaanite harlot who ran a brothel. And not only was she saved, but everybody that was in her house was saved. Whether they believed or not, just to be associated with her. Because God could cover her shame. He could cover anyone's shame. Do you see it? Right there. And Moses is telling them, you know, we're going to go in there and we're going to recreate the garden. And the garden means no more nakedness. 
No more exposure, no more shame. God is going to cover us the way he did Rahab, the way that Japheth and Shem covered uh, their father Noah, the way that Jesus Christ clothes you with his robes of righteousness so that you can stand before God and not be naked. You don't want to be naked in front of God. And he clothes us, covers us with his robe, his garment. And he says, now, go and create that society out there. Come in. Here's where you'll find the covering that only God can give. Will you trust him? Would you do it? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you. Uh, Sometimes it's mind-boggling to see how many times you have reached out to us with your hand of grace. Come, come to me. Let me cover you. Let me protect you. And some of us will do it for ourselves, but we will not do it for somebody else. We want judgment for them. We want grace for us, judgment for them. And I pray that you'll turn, the, turn us inside out so that we do not think that way. Judgment starts at the household of God with us. And only then are we prepared to show grace to someone else. Please, Father, as we come to your table, we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith so we know as we eat that bread and drink that cup, we know that we have union with your Son and that we're covered by his impregnable righteousness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.